so important in this time to reach out to my elders for spiritual guidance um, and surrender uh, in the midst of a time when you're trying to control a lot of things or some people are inclined to do that. And uh, you just have to be around people that have a larger arc of history and that have done a lot of things in their life. And I got a chance to reconnect with a a cat who's most known for being on the bandstand, making hit records, and uh, playing with all different types of cats. But he's also done quite a bit more in his life that we actually even haven't gotten to. This is our third installment. Lowell Levenger, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, you know, I have to ask you about this uh, uh, hang gliding, Hang Gliders West. Uh, to me, this is fascinating because I had a buddy who was deep into this stuff. I mean, he wasn't deep into it, but he was getting books out of the library from the early 70s when you were doing this. And it was basically you had some shorts on and you were taking flight in a pretty antiquated hang glider. And I wanted you to talk talk to the audience about um, what... What was the challenge for you there? Well, uh, it wasn't that much of a challenge for me. My piece, uh, Mike and Sid Eschenbach, who lived in Point Reyes Station, uh, were also infatuated with it. And uh, we got this kit from Manta Wings over in the East Bay that consisted of a bunch of aluminum tubing and some cables. And then you just bought heavy-duty uh, plastic, you know, wrap uh yeah, heavy-duty black plastic for the sale. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this is insane. There yeah. was no literature on I mean, you were making – this was insane. I just I, – I see pictures from it, and I said whoever was doing it, and you were doing it at that time. Now there's, you know, you know, cats that are, you know, fully – like, did full-time livings teaching this stuff. There was nobody teaching this back then. Yeah, well, we started teaching it pretty early in the game. So the people we bought that kit from, um, well, they started by just selling these kits, and then they started putting together gliders. Well, and then they started selling kits where they supplied the sales, too, sewed the sales together out of real right. that And uh, then they started putting the gliders together and selling them, and then they started putting the gliders together and testing them and selling them and started us giving lessons out at Dillon Beach. Wow. And uh, so me, uh, this friend, um, Michael Bach, and I were both out there, uh, both in fact kind of fascinated by this, and saw them doing their demos and took a couple of lessons and realized, I mean, I had given, you know, I taught music lessons before in my life quite a bit in my younger days. And what they were doing were just yelling, you know, they weren't teach. they were telling, not teaching. And if somebody didn't get it, they would just yell the same thing louder and uh, <laughs> wasn't really working that well. So we offered to uh, help them out with the teaching that we could maybe handle the students and they could do the demos and, you know, show how great the gliders flew. And meanwhile, we could handle the throwing the turkeys off the hill. And uh, how did you get your chops up? How quickly did you get your chops up? I mean, you were fascinated by this. What was the, what was yeah. the, yeah, go ahead. 
my whole life as a kid, I've been kind of haunted by dreams of flying. Wow. And actually, I was a glider pilot. As soon I, uh, I took uh, sailplane lessons over in Sebastopol, uh, Calistoga, wow. in the early late sixties and early seventies when we moved out here, and got my sailplane license and used to fly sailplanes. But then when I saw when I heard about this hang glider thing, and I went out to Dillon Beach and saw the first guy for man to take off in the top of the hill and fly down to the bottom test uh tears started streaming down my face i couldn't believe it and it was a kind of the same kind of thing the first time i heard earl scrubs play the banjo it was the same effect i got totally obsessed with (laughs) him and it's all i wanted to do and so yeah so we you know took over from them and started teaching then we got them to leave the gliders with us during the week because we were only teaching on weekends, so we could go flying on our own. We discovered all these little hills in Marin County that you could fly off of that had lift here and there. And uh, then, yeah, then eventually opened the shop. And by the time I got done with it, I am fairly proud of the fact that I taught about 5,000 people to fly, and I never had a single serious injury. Brother, that is one of the best stories I've heard in 2023. (laughs) <laughs> that is freaking amazing. Not just the the safety part of it. It's just, I mean, the I idea there was no regulation. It, you could just there was so much public land. Nobody was enforcing. You were like, oh, the the was there certain certain days when the wind was blowing a certain way that you were like, this has got we got to we got to find a hill. Yeah, but usually it belonged to somebody, and if you were hip enough, you talked to them and got permission. Dig, and or you could Dig. just dance. And then get busted. Right. Um, but yeah, and then there was the part that was uh, flying off Mount Town, flying off the Bolinas Ridge down to Stimson Beach, which we eventually got caught so many times that we ne- formed the Marin County Hang Gliding Association <laughs> and negotiated with the state park and actually got permission, providing there was all kinds of permits and passing different tests and all this crap actual permission if you have the right credentials to fly off the Bolinas Ridge down to Stinson Beach which was pretty amazing oh my god were you um, this was you said you had some what was the phrase you, you were at a fear of flying or something like that no I was I was fascinated with flying I had, I had dreams about being able to fly ever since I can remember, of just being able to kind of run along and then kind of take off and not in a totally Superman horizontal position, more in a kind of 45-degree angle and just swooping around and being able to, you know, completely control my flight. Uh, And this was something that, like, um, would you uh, be able to experience this state, uh, similar state on the bandstand? Oh no, it's a t- <laughs> totally different thing. Similar state, though. Similar. I mean, maybe maybe feeling. Maybe the feeling is the the, the what I'm trying to get at. This idea, this word, frisson, uh, frisson, f r i s s o n, and it's this phenomenon. I mean, this is not exactly. I'm talking about connecting with like the super, the sixth sense, so to speak. The phenomenon of chills and goosebumps that come from a piece of music or from any other aesthetic experience, is called a frisson. And it's been one of the big mysteries of human nature since it was first described. So, I mean, you just, 
you got to rush off of that. Yeah, but it is a different rush. You know, you certainly can't compare it to playing with a band because it's kind of a solitary thing. I mean, you might have usually you have someone you go flying with, but you're in your own thing. It's not like you're both in the same right. even lift necessarily. Uh, and on a bandstand with the band, you know, it's this whole interactive, cooperative uh, family thing. But I play a lot of gigs solo, and I guess, you know, maybe you get some of the same endorphins or something, but it's not, it's not very similar. So, you know, getting a song across and having the audience under, understand it and the emotion of it is not the same as getting some good lift and gaining 500 feet or something. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, how long in minutes is the trip from the Bolinas Ridge to Stinson? Well, it depends on the conditions, but if it's just, you know, fairly mild calm conditions and not a lot of places to work any lift and you're just kind of flying on down I guess about six minutes six or seven minutes oh my god and you're and I know you that when you started you were like I have to go out in the in the biggest fog back there must have been some foggy days that you went just to just to be if you wanted to become an instructor you obviously had to fly in bad weather well, no, you didn't. You have to, if you want to become an instructor, you should be able to instruct students not to fly in bad weather. <laughs> <laughs> you see, so you never had any close calls or anything in your, uh, in in that sort of rush or that sort of uh, passion? No, not really. But, you know, if, if I mean, the, the best way not to get hurt in a hang glider is don't take off. Maybe that sounds simplistic. Yeah, no. I'm, what, what is what does that mean? It means don't don't take off. You know, don't don't leave the ground. <laughs> and then you won't get hurt in a hang glider. And so, but basically, though, if you if you break down, what it means is only do it when the, everything's right, when the conditions are right, when your glider is right, when you're right. And if that if and none of this, any part of that isn't right, well then, you know, don't do it. You're, you're, if any part of that isn't right and you do it, your chances of getting hurt are increased. So, You still do it today? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I never know, man. <laughs> no. I don't know. I mean, I do have a new knee and a new hip, so I might be able to do it better than I would have been able to before I got those... <laughs> nice spanking new parts but still i don't think so <laughs> well you know uh i wanted to ask you about was your mom um taking you to see mu live music when and also kwbr that was the before kdia was that something um i'm just trying to i'm, I'm trying to figure out how you got how that how you even got hip to that did that come through your hometown discovered that on my own by twiddling the radio dial right looking for stuff that sounded good and um my parents took me to the symphony and they took me to some uh you know broadway shows and musicals in san francisco because my mom was in she had a lot of the uh broadway musical scores on records on 78 albums actually real albums and uh i loved them i was in love with all that music 
So occasionally we'd go to uh, go to the city when there was something playing there. But we went to the symphony quite a bit in Santa Rosa, and sometimes my mom actually played with the symphony. Really? What was her? I didn't even know she uh, she played piano, or what was she playing? Yeah, played piano. And they 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 had no in terms of like they understood, and there was always a lot of respect. I mean, so many cats I talked to, you know. Uh, they were play- They grew up, you know, in households where, um, you know, the kind of music they were playing, blues or Hendrix, it was just considered the devil's music. And uh, and when they when they finally made a career of their own, whether it was playing live or playing in the studios, their parents finally uh, respected what their decision. But I, I assume your folks were just like, we're not going to stop this cat. He's on his way. There was no, uh, they were completely open-minded to all forms of music. Yeah, well, they, yeah, she, they had uh, yeah all kinds of music in the house, and when I brought you know different kinds of music into the house, they uh, certainly didn't object to it. I mean, I don't think my mom thought that Jimmy Reed was as cool as Cole Porter. <laughs> um, so, the, no, nobody objected to it, and uh, but then you know when I did uh, decide to drop out of BU and. Uh, pursue a career in music they cut me off they said no 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 you have to go back you know apologize to the dean and re-enroll in school and if you don't then we're going to stop paying your rent we're going to stop sending you a monthly allowance and you're going to be on your own oh really that's all well gosh thanks (laughs) wow Stop or disown me or anything. You're just gonna stop sending me money. That's fine. You know, no problem. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, I dig. No, I mean, to me, like that. Offered me uh, right around that time. Had offered me to, to if I wanted to take over his advertising agency in Santa Rosa, which was very successful. And my music career was not very successful, but you know, I, are you kidding? No, thank you very much, but no. He was a little disappointed, but he wasn't pissed off at all. Right. Uh, yeah. I think he understood. I mean, I want to read you this quote. This is a cat you may have crossed paths with at Club Forty Seven back when um, Chuck Israel's. He said. Um, I grew up in an era that I believed was normal. It wasn't. It was historically quite abnormal. I grew up in an era when popular music was written and consumed by educated people. Popular music was geared towards people with an education. George Gershwin, Cole Porter, Frank Lesser, Henry Warren, Duke Ellington, Fats Waller. All that music you could hear on the radio every day, I thought it was normal. I thought in 1965, when the baby boom generation reached adolescence and 76 million adolescents were suddenly in the world with money in their pockets, I thought that was a revolution that destroyed normalcy and how the market gravitated towards getting teenagers money. Teenage music took over the world and marginalized everything else. I thought, what has happened to this wonderful world that I lived in? That wonderful world was terribly unusual because if you go back to the early 20th century, late 19th century, pop music was crap then, too. (laughs) But I just, I wanted to get your take on, um, you know, how how you come down on that. True. And at the same time 
that that all that great stuff, Gershwin and Cole Porter and Rogers and Hammerstein and Rogers and Hart and all, all that stuff was going on. Um, you know, so was Dizzy Gillespie and so was Earl Scruggs and so was uh, Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry and so was John Lee Hooker and so was Muddy Waters. It was all happening at the same time in the late 40s, you know, 40, yeah, basically mid to late 40s after the war and into the mid 50s was this huge blossoming of art and music and theater uh, in the United States. It's, uh, you know, and then it's kind of, you know, became the beat generation and then it became the, the flower, the children and all that, and they, the folk rock was born and whatnot. But yeah, and also at that same time, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie were, was happening uh, all that in the late 40s. Yeah, your uh, na- that's really fascinating stuff. It was every genre was just it was on. Yeah. Music to me was South Pacific and Carousel and My Fair Lady and uh, and you know a bunch of symphonies and uh, but then uh, also you know pop music that the, the uh, Your Hit Parade was horrible and it was a lot of it was terrible, but if. You, and listened to KWBR or one of the country stations, you heard stuff that was, oh man, that stuff has some meat to it, you know, it actually and has meaning to the words, you know, it's a complicated feelings expressed in simple terms. It's fascinating just to see the sort of uh, placating to, um, you know, just the youth and allowing the youth to di- dictate popular music. And again, some of those, some of the stuff that did come out of, uh, you know, that '60s and '70s period is just, you know, it, from all phases, it's great. I feel like, um, well, first of all, did you ever uh, cross paths with Pete Seeger? Um, yeah, I had a bunch of gigs and festivals and stuff, but I never really had a conversation with him. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, because like, Chuck Israel's also he was playing on the porch with with uh Seeger in like nineteen fifty one, you know, singing work tunes and I, I, I there was just you sort of was there uh could you talk about that scene before you went to New York, uh growing up, like the sort of work songs and or folk music that you were that you were going I mean, outside of your parents taking you to the symphony. Uh, well, yeah. What would you be going to see uh, on your own? Uh, I, I used to go to the Russian River where they had rock and roll shows, and uh, Chuck Berry came through, and Little Richard, and Fats Domino. I mean, all the all the biggies came through there. Wow, in Nido. and I wasn't. I, I had older friends who drove, and they would drive there, and some of them, you know, could sneak in somehow. <laughs> yeah, backstage door and listen from there. But I heard some of the greats live uh, doing that. And then I remember this one uh, 1961 concert we went to in the East Bay with a buddy of mine who could drive. And it was Ray Charles. And uh, Mm -hmm. what the theater was. But we were like the only two white kids in the place of 5,000 people. And uh, he was playing a 5,000 seater? Yeah. Wow. Uh, 
And uh, then on the way out, we're coming out the front doors, and they have the marquees, you know, with the glass. Sure. Turn back to the glass thing with a door that has a little key in it that unlocks so you can switch the posters out. <laughs> yes. I noticed that one of the marquees had the glass door slightly ajar, but it wasn't actually locked. And so I told Dan, my buddy, we, we were like 13 years old or something, right? And I said, go get the car. He was 15 and a half or something. Go get the car, bring it right around, right to the front of the steps here. And uh, so he did. And uh, he got the car right around in front. And I opened the thing and grabbed the poster. And immediately about, you know, 500 kids said, hey, what do you, hey, hey, look. <laughs> They had the door open, and I jumped in, and we floored it and got the hell out of <laughs> and, uh, so, I love it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, were you going to Don Barksdale's clubs to see, like, James Brown and the Flames, or, like, those early, like, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters? Were you some one of those cats that wasn't, that you were searching for that black music in that East Bay? Where was this club? In the East Bay? Yeah, the Continental Club. I mean, it was kind of around the time you had already jettisoned to... What year did you go to Boston? 1962? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, 61. That's an... You went to see Ray Charles in 61 at 13 years old. Yeah. Well, I guess... So maybe 63 then to Boston, I guess. 63 to Boston. You... Did you... Have you done a lot of... Did you guys, whether the Young Bloods, I know, actually, I know with uh, with the, the dear Uncle Fish, Barry Melton, you guys play some overseas um, uh, tours, but I, I wanted you to talk about... We also played last night. Well, that is so beautiful to hear, man. I love yeah. Barry Melton, man. Um, <clears throat> I sounded really good last night. Could you talk about an, an international experience when you were able to corral one or several old fretted instruments from for your collection early on? Oh, I've never corralled any instruments traveling internationally. So can you just talk about, like, maybe the the spark or, like, the... I just remember Emil Richards, the great percussionist. He, uh, rest in peace, part of... Really, Sinatra played vibes with... Shearing and all these cats, but with, with Sinatra, they rent Sinatra rented his own plane for a State Department tour in '64, and Amel went there, and you know they were going to the Middle East, and you know they were trying to forge their way through music, and Amel filled up the belly of the plane with like 700 percussive instruments from all over the world, and I know that you have a great collection, but I wasn't sure you would consider it all sort of North American string instruments. Right. What I my interest lies in uh, American fretted instruments made between the late 1800s and the late 1940s. However, I have lost my collector mentality. Really, what it all boils down to is stuff, and uh, there are among the stuff are some tools that I can use to uh, make a living and to whatever pursue my art and my craft that get used at gigs and in the studio or recording here at home demos or something. But other than that, the really cool collector's items, you know, that are just amazing and 
to look at and everything and they're sitting in the closet and every so often someone comes by who has the same kind of appreciation for them that I do and I can get it out and show them then it goes back in the closet and uh, it sits there and then you know I could next time I go to a San Rafael I could get hit by a bus and then my kids have to deal with all this stuff which to them really is just stuff. They don't know anything about these instruments or whatnot. So which is better? A really cool guitar <laughs> sitting in the closet that's worth a whole lot of money or a trip to Italy? Well, I would just say, Lowell, that, uh, you know, to f put your attentions in a more positive place, I mean, because God forbid, you know, you're around for a good long time, uh, is to try to find, if, if, if your kids are not, gonna you know i think part of the disillusionment so if that's the right word it's just you're you're not sure it's who, who who's supposed to pass it on to so maybe that it's a mission to to find somebody who can house a collection that's probably overwhelming and you've lost you know sort of that inspiration and passion and curation component but maybe the goal should be to find somebody that would actually treasure this stuff it might have been overwhelming at one time, but I've been at this now, uh, deep, trying to thin the herd. You've been thinning some. the herd. I, wow, that's good. And it's no longer uh, overwhelming. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, no, tell me about it when it was overwhelming. How many yeah. instruments did you have, man? Oh, I don't know, 125 or something like that. But anyway, yeah, uh, just, you know, getting rid of one here and there. And they do go to good homes. And then, uh, again, what it's a trip to Italy is so much more valuable in so many more ways than a really cool guitar sitting in a closet. That is a burden to somebody. Well, no, you are, then you're doing, you're already doing it. You're distributing it. You know, maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not the, the way you, who knows, there was no envisioning of this. I guess... Maybe my question was at the time, why did you focus on those instruments from that specific time period? Oh, just because they had a sort of a aesthetic appeal to me and because they're really cool and that a lot of them really have a, you know, great playability and great sound. Uh, so, yeah, and, you know, you, because they increase, theoretically increase in value, they're good investments. Uh so yeah, a bunch of, a bunch of reasons. But like I say now, to me, uh, that stuff stuff is just not as important as experience. <laughs> Tell me about an experience this year that has been inspiring for you. Well, we just got back from Italy uh, about a week ago, and it was a really great trip. We went to a bunch of places we haven't been to before, and. I got to play with these guys I played with once before, and now I've played with them three times. Wow. And go back and play with them again in May, and we're getting pretty good, you know? And there's a bunch of other musicians in Italy that I get to play with, too, when I go over there. And uh, Yeah, it's, I really enjoy uh, being over there and having been able to make these cool musical connections. So uh, that's great. And uh, coming right up... Uh, what is it? The taping, I believe, is the 14th. Is that right? Yeah. 14th of uh, December. The Disciples of Soul are going to tape a TV segment for The View with Darlene Love. Oh, my God, dude. This is great. Classic. 
and the whole band is going to be there. And Stephen is flying me back just to rehearse this one and play this one song. <laughs> he is an amazing, incredible guy. So, yeah, the family is getting back together again for one song. Wait, hold on. Why does he, so this is like, uh, why does he need Lowell Levenger on that too? Why, I mean, he obviously wants to connect. You guys are like two, two crumbs in a toaster. Like you said, you bonded right away. Uh, yeah. Organization is a family. What is family? What does that mean? So explain, cause I mean, families, I mean, it's the whole gambit, you know, but it's just, it, it, you're in it for life. For one, everybody would back each other up to the hilt. Everybody actually really loves each other. Uh, and so, you know, everybody wants everybody to be there. And Stephen, as the padrone, wants everyone to be there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm part of it. Yes, it's more expensive to get me there than anybody else, but still he does it, you know? I think it's just so so amazing, and he was just so inspired to see the sophistication of the Youngbloods, because he was younger than you, and then to just sort of, um, I think it's just a very, it's a very beautiful thing. I mean... So in 60 Minutes last night, yeah. you can see the thing on go to cbs.com or whatever, and you can see his interview, it's really great. He's, he's an amazing guy. He's, you know, maybe not the high point of this last year, but the high point of the last five years for sure is working with him. Um, absolutely. And actually, you sort of answered your own question about, you know, sort of sitting in a closet. Like, those instruments are gathering dust. Well, you know, I think you still have the will and the desire to play live. And, absolutely. And... and can you talk about the folk aesthetic of these uh, Italian musicians? Like, I'm just curious about the kind of cats that you fell in with and if it's more about, um, you know, sort of, well, it's just, it's very indigenous kind of music. Well, the, these the two, the first batch of musicians that I fell in with are uh, from Genova, and they're a bluegrass band called Red Wine. Wow various little, you know, other musicians who are kind of attached on the periphery of that. But they are bluegrass musicians. They're, they've been a bluegrass band in Italy for 40 years. Uh, you know, they started when they were basically kid 25 years old and absorbed this Appalachian American music, uh, fell in love with it, learned how to sing the songs, and... Um, now they're doing more contemporary stuff and stuff that they've written, and but they still do a lot of the bluegrass classic. Anyway, so that's one group of musicians, and then the group that I just played with. So these guys are in Genoa. The group I just played with is over in Veneto, near Venice, wow. uh, uh, Vicenza, that area. They are also bluegrass musicians. Wow, uh, a bluegrass band called the Crossroad Pickers, and. Uh, but they are also more into, they're also into uh, California, seven, six, late 60s and 70s California rock and roll. Uh, and then a lot of the other musicians that I play with there are into the, you know, U.S. rock and roll and the British and bass are the same thing that everybody else is into. And the folk rock thing uh, and 
folk. Uh, one of one of the one of the guys who helps me get gigs is totally into folk and just brings folk singers over. <laughs> that and is fantastic. Folk festivals honoring Towns Van Zandt. Folk festivals honoring Bob Dylan. Folk festivals honoring Bubble. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's all kinds of different factions of musicians over there, all infatuated with different aspects of American music, from bluegrass to rock and roll, and to blues too. I mean that that No Toten Blues Festival is fantastic in Norway. There's there's uh you mentioned that you were host or you uh you were hosting da- the uh, the old cowboy David Nelson um and i just wanted you to talk about did you cross paths with him the first time did you go on were you linked up on tours with the young bloods and, and new riders no i never knew him when he was in the new riders and i'm trying to think of how the hell did we get together. yeah i'm that's what i'm trying to get at uh let's see oh <laughs> Um, I knew he was into bluegrass, you know, heavy into bluegrass from the old days. Absolutely. And then we played some sort of a party together or something, I think. You know, we both, with the, some uh, uh, mutual acquaintance was having, throwing a big party at a winery or a birthday party or something like that. And we were both in the band, probably with Greg Anton and... Sure. Uh, so the drummer from Zero. Oh my God, I love that cat, man. Yeah, well, he's yeah, he's we're old, really, really good. Friends. Yeah, an ethnomusicologist as well, you know. Anyway, so that's probably how we sort of became more aware of each other. And so you guys were already like established cats at that point when you first connected. Yeah, this was only. Uh, thirty years ago, or something, or twenty-five years ago. No, oh, thank God it happened. Better soon, better, you know. Um, Maybe ninety, ninety-four, or ninety-five, or something. Anyway, so then we realized, you know, I realized, blah blah blah, and I called him up and I said, you know what, I want to start a real bluegrass band, you know, <laughs> a bunch of this old Reno and Smiley stuff, and and he said, wow, that's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> 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 I said, okay. So we did it, and we got, you know, Paul Knight on bass and uh, Ed Neff on, uh, yeah. and then Paul Shalaski on fiddle, and I played banjo, and he played guitar, and we became the Patron Mill Creek Rounders and played all these gigs, playing all this bluegrass, you know, solid, straight bluegrass stuff for, I don't know, four or five years or something. Uh, and then he and I went on tour uh, to England and Scotland and the Netherlands a couple of times. And now we just do these duo gigs around here every so often. And the last one was the night, the 17th, a few nights ago in San Francisco. And it was great. Uh, Where'd you play? At a, a, a private house concert. It was a secret address. You didn't find out until the day. <laughs> it totals, no, I'm not, I live in Tucson, but I just, I was like, dude, what club are they playing at? Of course it was private. No, it was this cat's house up in Diamond Heights. It was really cool. But uh, anyway, yeah, and what we do is we just do the same stuff, that old Reno and Smiley stuff. We sing duets. I play banjo. He plays guitar. Uh, and it's really fun. We get a great blend, and everybody is absolutely in love with him. You know, 
So uh, yeah. I just think it's. I think it's. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, I wanted. Did you? You. What does Barry Melton bring to the bandstand that gets you off? Oh, just his general personality and his. You know, he has a vast knowledge of uh, folk music and all that, and also of the people. You know, he has a vast knowledge of people. But he's just, you know, a really good humor, generous, good old friend. Uh, and uh, I mean, Greg Douglas, who was in Country Weather, which was kind of a, uh, he was he's he was a badass. He played with Cipollina and uh, eventually Steve Miller as well. But he remembers seeing Barry with Country Joe and the Fish back at, maybe at Fillmore West, and I mean, Melton Shred, man, he could play. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean sort of yeah. in the same vein as, as you, you know? Yeah. And he was yeah, he's a shredder, you know, he can do that shredder shredder thing. Uh <laughs> you know, in the in the most lyrical sense. I just I wonder for you, um what is you know, what is still left on your bucket list? Um you know, knock on wood, you're around for a long time, um, but is there? Do you feel like there's something that you, you're still, uh, for lack of a better word, horny to do? Well, I'm working on a new CD right now that has five or six original tunes, which I hope people will like. And uh, yeah, I want to expand. Uh, I've got uh, my first gigs in Germany the last weekend in April, mm. and then I'm going a bunch more gigs I hope in May in Italy and I want to keep expanding that and I hope that there will be uh, some more Dis- Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul gigs maybe in 2025 or something uh, I know everybody is game to do it and I'm pretty sure he would like to do it too it's just a matter of being able to afford it I guess uh but yeah, so that's <laughs> I would really love to do that again. That's really really fun. I'm curious actually about not that you are, know the ins and outs of the stuff, but just my friends. I mean, at 45 years old, I mean, I have friends who are my age or older, uh, and that the road dog circuit. I mean, it's forget little Steven. It's like yeah, you know, they're in a sprinter van. It's you know since bef- you know before COVID, you go probably about a month and sell enough merch to probably make, get ahead a little bit, a little bit. But now that the tours have been cut down in half, probably two or two and a half weeks, you don't get paid for the gigs anymore. You guys used to get decent payback when. You only make stuff off the merch table. So, like, even little Steven, like, it, it, is there a budget there to, like, if he wanted to go on tour, could he do it in this, domestically, in this current economic environment? It depends on how much he wanted to spend or what kind of uh, supporter or, uh, you know, uh, sponsoring or something that he could get. But, you know, I would I would say before he embarked on the three-year uh, Disciples project, uh, he had a lot of money. And some people who have a whole lot of money maybe buy a fancy plane or a yacht or something, he chose to take a 15-piece band on the road. Mm-hmm. There you go. You know. You told me last time. You told me last time. It's a he. He seeks greatness. That's it. It's about greatness. 
all the merch you want. But uh, and we were playing on the road. We were playing to you know twenty five hundred seat hall, maybe five thousand seat halls, with a stadium show. <laughs> so no, you can't make any money doing that at all. You, you that costs money. Right, right. He just chose from his point of view to say, "Hey, I, I, this is what I believe in. This is what I want to do." Yeah, and we put it out there, and we did the the teach rock thing, and spread the word, and yeah, you know, help help preserve rock and roll, and uh, really did help get the teach rock thing off the ground. Do you uh, you have any advice for um, younger road dogs at this point? I mean, basically, like a lot of cats say, also there just isn't maybe twenty five years ago. Um, you had to stand up for yourself. The money was there. You had to stand up for yourself and advocate for what you were worth. Now, it really is for the love of the music if you're doing touring now. And I just wonder um, what your what your advice is to younger cats who still believe that they can affect positive change in their world and beyond through the vibration of music. Yeah, don't give up. You know, <laughs> keep keep at it. Uh, it's worth it. It's worth doing something. Something that's worth doing. And if you can find a way to make money on the side, uh, that's not a bad idea either. Uh, it's nice to be able to pay your own rent. I love that. Going back to what your folks did, in some ways, it's um, you know cutting the cord is harder and harder. Uh, and uh, but I feel like for you is. Um, you said, hey, that's it. You're not going to disown me. I'm off, baby. I'm ready to cook. And uh, and I think that probably was the best blessing in the world. Yeah. And I think in those days it was quite a bit easier. Uh, you think? <laughs> 30 bucks, to, 100, 150 bucks for an apartment in Cambridge maybe or less? Especially in the Bay Area. In the yeah. Bay Area too, man. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, you know... Brother Levenger, it's it's always an honor to uh, to hear your voice, man. And I uh, I look forward to you know meet, meeting up with you in the new year, man. It was it was great to hang with you. All right, man. Pleasure. Yeah. Get you. Yeah. Yeah. Much love. Take it easy. All right. All right. Be cool. Bye. Bye.